Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I'm really digging the New Jersey life. I, you know, I was in L.A. for so long that I, I moved back two weeks ago. And it's amazing how just how great the how great no traffic is. Because in L.A., you get so used to traffic all the time. And it basically it comes down to a point where, it, where everywhere else in the country is pretty much a minute per mile or a minute per 1.5 miles. In L.A., it's like four minutes per mile. So it was great. I drove in the middle of the afternoon. It was it was supposed to be, it was lunchtime in LA. An eight mile ride would take me 35 minutes. I made it across town and, and Cherry Hill's a busy area. I made it in 15 minutes. So anyway, we have a, we have a great guest today. And I gotta tell you something, I'm sort of, I'm sort of a moron because my guest, he's, he's, a, he's a great actor. He's a, he's a writer. He just directed a movie, and he's a rapper. His name is Marvin Young, and he's better known as Young MC. But what's weird is, for it just occurred to me yesterday, Young MC, his last name is Young. I, for years, this is no lie, since I've heard his music, I thought he was called Young MC because he looked very young. And so yesterday, I just figured out. It's young. His last name is Young, and, his last, and he's an MC. And I'm such a moron, but my guess is... This is Marvin Young, a.k.a. Young MC. How you doing, Marvin? Good, man. How are you? Good. I, I, dude, I just figured it out yesterday. I feel like such a moron. I was sitting there going, oh, wait a second. His name's Marvin Young. Young MC. It makes sense. I just thought it was because you looked young back when the video came out. No, we, we weren't very original when we were coming up with names when I started rapping. So, like, <laughs> Young was my last name, and I was always the youngest one in the crew, so I called myself Young MC, and it stuck. Now, now you were born in England, and then you moved over to the States at a young age. Um, when you were a kid growing up in New York, and I know you ended up going to school for economics, what did you want to do? And then are you, I mean, you must be amazed when you sit there and, and your career has taken so many different facets. You know, people know you from uh, Bust a Move, but, you know, you just directed a movie we're going to talk about. You've yeah. contributed. What did, as a kid, what was your gig? Like, did you want to play sports? Did you want to act? I mean, what did you want to do as a kid? No, the music came because I wasn't, a, you know, wasn't an athlete. I didn't want to play sports. Um... A lot of kids running around in the neighborhood, and, and they would do everything from playing basketball to graffiti to, you know, getting in whatever. And I just didn't find something that I really wanted to do out of what was in front of me. Then the first time I saw somebody behind a microphone and, and a DJ behind turntables, I'm like, I like that, not only because I like music, but it was a great way for me to express myself. So I thought it was something to, to kind of establish my individuality. And, and I started, I take, took the name and started doing it from when I was 11 years old. So that, that's, uh, that, that's, that's how I started. Now, when you're 11, what are you rapping about? I mean, you're a kid. I mean, what, like, oh, what's... Yeah. That, that's very interesting. I literally, I, I would start rapping about nursery rhymes. I'd start rapping about nice sneakers and jeans and a little bit about girls. We didn't know that much about girls, but but um, I, I would just rap about the things I knew. It wasn't it wasn't the kind of thing we had to get, you know, young kids talking about street crime and stuff like that. It, it just wasn't that way in Hollis when I was coming up. So I, I just rapped about what I knew and just tried to get better at it. That was my thing is that anybody that I heard that could rhyme fast or rhyme in some kind of intricate manner, I wanted to make sure that I could keep up with them. Now, where would you rap at? I mean, because the rap wasn't really big yet. I mean, would you just hang out in the corner? Would you maybe go to, in school? Would you go to a talent show at school? Or, or no, where no, did you... no, no, no. It wasn't even that, that, that uh, organized. It was uh, my friend Jeff Taylor. He had a basement. He had a, you know, DJ set up in his basement. We had a crew with four DJs and 11 MCs. It was 15 of us in the crew. There were different crews around the neighborhoods. There would be block parties and house parties and that kind of thing. Um, 
And that's basically it. I got a D, I got a DJing gig at a roller rink when I was a teenager. But for the most part, it was like block parties, house parties, mixtapes, house tapes, sessions, ciphers, that kind of thing. It really was the the unofficial approach when when um when I first started. Now, as you're starting it, are you are you foreseeing a career in this, or, or where do you think it's going to take you? Because you it are young. Always, it was always a hobby. Okay. I was never one that, that, that said, oh, I'm going to quit everything and drop everything, and then I'm going to be become a famous rapper. One, my parents would have killed me. But <laughs> number two, um, I always thought, saw it as, I mean, I saw it for what it was. I mean, it was very rare that somebody came out and, and made money at it. I mean, we, we didn't have a lot of big rappers making a lot of money when we were talking 1978, 1979. You know, there, there, there wasn't these stories of people changing their lives with the music. It was something I liked to do. It was something I liked getting better at. And just like how a kid, you know, an athlete would get better at playing basketball or football or, or whatever their, 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 their passion was, I got better as an MC between the ages of 11 and like 18, 19. Now, what is it like back then when you are basically, you're going into an, a territory that's not really charted. There's probably, there's no, there's no styles. Like, you know, like there's was folk music and stuff like this. It was, what was it like being like, you were in the beginning, it's not in the beginning, but being in this, it, it wasn't real known yet. What's that like as, you know, someone being in that situation? I didn't really see it as a career from when I first started because hearing rappers delight on FM radio and being able to hear the hi-hats and being, here to, being, being able to hear the clarity of the record on the radio, that was new to me. So the whole thought of me being able to start rapping in my friend's basement and take that to a career, it didn't add up. I mean, there were, there were opportunities that people said that they worked for record labels and that kind of thing, but nothing ever came of it. I didn't know anybody that came up and, and blew up... Um, um, from it, and, and most of the guys were older than me, so the guys that were really good, I'm thinking, okay, they should get signed, and none of them got signed. So I never thought that I would get signed. You so, know what I mean? And, and I say this now, uh, having a chance to look back on it, and it's just because of how it was, but because of my age, because of where I was, if I stayed in New York, you never would have heard of me. So you were in New York. Now, you went to college in New York. Now, what was your major? No, no, I went, no, I went to college at USC in California. Okay, did... So I left New York at 18 to go to college at USC. And then when I, when I, after my sophomore year, went back to New York, trying to make some demos to get a record deal, the guy I was working with, Eric, uh, was trying to get me with a label there, didn't work, but he got in contact with people that, uh, Mike and Matt that owned Delicious Vinyl, and I literally rapped for them over the phone, and they sent me a contract in the mail a week later. Now, did you like USC? And you had to be, you, you have to be a sharp guy. USC's not an easy school to get into. No, it's, it's become harder and harder <laughs> as time has gone on. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I did well on my SATs. I went to an accelerated high school in New York, and there's a certain hustle that, that comes from growing up in New York. So I took that with me and, and uh, was able to apply it in my schoolwork, but then also apply it in my music as well. Now, now, you get the record contract. Now, do you stay in school or do you decide yes, to leave? Yes. I got the rec rec record contract in September of 1987. So that's the beginning of my junior year. So I don't graduate until May of 1989, and Bust Move comes out finals week of senior year. So, okay, so, so you have a song comes out, you're, I mean, finals, finals are, you know, or when I'm at the college, you know, finals are stressful as hell. How can you sit there and concentrate on the finals when you have a song coming out? When you have, essentially, I mean, all right, first thing, K-Day, 
which was featured in Straight Outta Compton, but that AM radio station was the first station to play me. I started getting played in 1988. So I knew what it was like to be in my dorm room and hear a record I had on the radio. So K-Day played me. I want to say KJLH played me a little bit. I don't, um, power didn't exist at the time. So I, I was accustomed to getting local records played on radio, so it didn't, you know, freak me out. Knowing, knowing that that was happening. Tone had already blown up a little bit with Wild Thing, but my degree was so close, number one. And number two, um, you know, records, I, there was no reason for me to think that, that, that records were gonna blow up that big and we didn't have an internet. Cell phones weighed like 10 pounds. Right. You know, mobile phones <laughs> weighed 10 pounds. So there, there was no, and, and everybody didn't have cable. So even a video getting played on MTV took a while for it to really, you know, get some traction, there was no way for me to, to get an idea of how it was going all over the country. I'd get phone calls from people, or people at the label would say they heard this or they heard that, but it, even not being able to email on a regular basis really cuts down the amount of information you can get. So I was sheltered from a lot of it. The record was out, people were hearing it, but there was no way for me to know that somebody in Des Moines was, was, was hearing a record, liking a record. It was nothing like, like now. In now, terms of, of the speed of information and how wide you can get it out quickly. I know it's so crazy when I think of it now. You know, it's like you could find anything on the internet. And back then, you're right. You, you couldn't find, you know, anything. It was like you had to wait right. till the newspaper came out. Now, when you said Tone, now how did you hook up with Tone? And, and when did you start writing with him? Um, I, Tone had signed on the label before me. And um, he had put out, I want to say it was, was Chiba Chiba and I Got It Going On. I want to say that those were the two that he had, and he got played on KDA before I did. And then the idea was to take, to, you know, to start crossing the records over. So they saw how I wrote. I didn't curse in my rhymes or anything like that. Tone wrote with a more street style. So they wanted to come first with Wild Thing, and Tony wrote some stuff, and it really wasn't, it, it was stuff he liked, but it was, really wasn't suitable for radio. So then they gave it to me, and I, you know, the, the, the folklore is that, that I, that I said, I'll call you back with your record, because I wasn't a, a big fan of writing for somebody, writing for somebody else before I was writing, you know, my own stuff. And it took about 35 to 40 minutes, but out, out of that came three of the four verses that are now Wild Thing. So you write that, and now yes. you're writing for that, you're doing your own your own thing, and you're going to school. Now yes. when, you, when you... And and by the way, at the beginning of junior year, I was in student senate. Okay. So an 18 units, full load, 18 <laughs> credits, student senate, um, I had a part-time job as a ticket taker and an usher at the sports arena and the uh, Coliseum, that, that complex over there, and I j had just signed my record deal. So that's how 87 to 88 went for me. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why you've, you've uh, diversified in your career so much, because you had a good work ethic and you had a bunch of stuff going on at a young age and you learned a discipline on how to keep yeah. things straight? Yeah, I mean, I mean... Um, I, I, I tell people now because they look at it and say, well, you went to college, you got this degree, and you never put it on a job application. Do you think you wasted your time? And um, I always had the work ethic. I went to an accelerated high school in New York. Um, but I, I always look at college. College teaches you how to finish. So as soon as I knew I could get through four years, and I finished in four years, graduated in four years, and I went on with my, with my career after that, um, being able to accomplish something and knowing if somebody puts a one or two or three year project in front of you that you can finish it and you've done it before, that's a great deal of confidence. The people that you rely on at work are the ones that are able to finish. The people you don't rely on are the ones that find every excuse not to finish something. 
So I always wanted to be a guy that finished stuff, whether it be stuff that I wanted to do, stuff that I had to do, stuff I was obligated to do. If my name went on it, I wanted to make sure I finished it. See, that's good. That shows a good work ethic. And now, so you sit there and you do bust a move. Now, how did you come up? What was your What was your creative instinct for writing that? Well, I mean, now mind you, this is in the this is in the context of Tone coming out with Wild Thing, selling at that point upwards of three million records. Funky Cole Medina coming out, that being platinum, going going close, going close to double platinum. People looking at me saying, why would you help write those records? You know, you could have wrote them for yourself. And I'm thinking, I wrote those for Tone and Tone's voice and Tone's everything. So those were his records. And I'm, I'm looking at my career saying, okay, well, let's go with this busted move that sounds more like an R&B record, more like a soul record and less like a rock record. Because if you remember, Tone had, had those rock guitars in both Wild Thing and Funky Comedina, and that really helped the popularity of it. So my records were a bit slower, and they, and they didn't have any rock guitars, and they had more of a soul R&B edge. And I was concerned because I, I'm like, this isn't the formula, but let's see what we can do. So I, I literally, I wrote Busted Move in, in 90 minutes, the initial hook I called it Make That Move, it was changed to Bust a Move, that's the only change that, that was made. Four verses, uh, 16 bars each, and like I said, it took me 90 minutes, and that 90 minutes pretty much changed my life. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you know, it comes out, and everybody knows that song. I mean, there's certain songs that, you know, people know, and, and especially I always say, like, if, if someone's over 35 or 40 right. and they've never heard that song, I don't even want to talk to them because they're just, they're out of it. But now, what is it like as a, as a young kid, and you, you seem very grounded because you worked and you worked hard, what is it like when that starts getting airplay and it starts getting bigger, and all of a sudden you're sitting there, you know, you, you're, you, no one can prepare themselves for that kind of success. I mean, it just blew up. But How do you handle but that? the thing is, Steve, it's different. It was different then. Because without cell phones, without an internet, without widespread cable TV, how do I know what's happening in other places until I get there? That's the point. If it was happening now, then you could literally like have access to charts and have access to all kind of stuff and have access to information and whatever. You could go online and you could find out what things, what's happening anywhere in the world. It wasn't like that then. So I didn't know how, I was like, wow, my record's popular here. And I drive to another city, wow, my popular there. And I get on a plane and fly, wow, my record's where they know me here. That's how it was. I never really was in a position where I got bombarded with all of the popularity all at once, other than like award shows. It was totally different in terms of, and, and my record took a long time to bubble up. It was on the pop charts for 40 weeks. So that lasted my second single, that lasted my third single. 40 weeks. You know what I mean? It was on the on the on the, uh, on the uh, top the uh, top two hundred on Billboard. That's a long time. Oh yes, yeah, very long time. Now you said earlier that you if you had not moved to LA, you, you wouldn't have made it. Why wouldn't have that? Why wouldn't have you hit it in New York? There's a pecking order in New York. It may have changed now, but back then there was a pecking order in New York. When you got in, how old you were, who you knew, where you lived, you know where you lived. Um, I wouldn't have been able to make a record like Bust a Move in New York. Like if I, if I if I took that into an A and R meeting in New York, I don't think they would have seen past what the vibe was in the street and 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 and, and taking the chance of putting their label name on the line to make a record like Bust the Move or Wild Thing. So you do Bust the Move, and it, it when it becomes a hit, and all of a sudden you know you know you're at the MTV Awards and all that stuff, and it's on MTV, and people must start recognizing you. How does that? What does that do to you? Does that change you, or are you just sitting there blown it away? Mind you, I'm coming out of college. So before I go into college, I'm just a kid running around in New York. I go to college in LA, and then when I graduate, you know, within a year or two of graduating, you know, or a year of graduating, really, the, the video's all over the place. So all of a sudden, I don't go to malls at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
I don't go to movies Friday and Saturday night. I try to avoid big crowds. If I go shopping, I go like grocery shopping at 6 a.m. when the store opens. <laughs> I go to the mall at 10 a.m. when the store is open. When it's empty, and if anybody recognizes me, it's not a you know, a, a, a stampede or whatever. And to this day, I still do that, not because I just like shopping at empty stores. But that's what got me into it was I still wanted to be a normal guy that did his own shopping, did his own thing, didn't want to have assistance going out and getting me stuff. I wanted to be around people. Now, at that age, it's very hard because, you know, when we're that, we're that young, we don't, you know, we're used to a normal, you know, as I said, getting out of college, you know, we're not used to this. I mean, did you did you mature very quickly, or did you feel like you could enjoy the fame, even though you were trying to not be bombarded? I mean, a lot of stuff that passed me by, but the thing is, is I'm I'm, a, I'm I'm the kind of person that really if there's a, if I make a mistake, I make it once, and I, I really didn't I didn't have I don't have that thing in me where I feel a, I need to impress a bunch of people. Like I think I got that out of my out of the way with how well my records did and the acclaim I got from that. So in my personal life, I really didn't feel like I had to do a bunch of stuff to impress people. So I was able to just mature and watch and listen. And I didn't get into drinking and I didn't get into doing any drugs. And I was just able to grow up. And, and the insecurities you have in your 20s as a man saying, what am I going to do for a living? And will people like me? And will I find a woman in my life? And, and what, will I, what, you know, what will I do? Will I be able to make a mark on, on, on the world? And will I be able to, you know just do good things and then, and I pretty much satisfied all that for myself early on so I was able to just you know take my 20s and and, um, and, and, and kind of mature and live life and figure out what was important to me you know and that was, that was a big thing because it's helped me now as I've, as I've gotten older I'm not relying on the fact that I have a big record bust to move but like what are the opportunities that can come in front of me you know that I can make happen and that's that's why you know even even now I mean I'm making my first movie it's it's being released in my late 40s or 50 years old I I, I was able to see my way through that because it just I, I was able to put into perspective what was important and what wasn't to me I want to talk more about your the rapping career but I want to talk about your movie uh, you just you just got distribution it's called Justice Served yes, and sir. now how did you what at what point in your life did you sit there and say I want to make a movie? And the thing is, also you know when you directed it and you wrote it, and so yeah. it's it's such that's such a huge task. And I know a lot I know directors who they, you know they sit there and, and they get into it, and all of a sudden in the middle they feel like holy crap, what did I get into? But what made you decide to to, to do this? Was it something? At what point did you want to start directing and writing? Did you always like when you did your first video? Did you sit there and go no, that be cool? You know what I, I gotta say. The writing, I mean, me at, at my core, I'm a writer. So my rapping is good because of my writing. And my acting and the directing is good because of my writing. So I always said to myself that I wanted to write a screenplay, get it sold, get it produced, whatever. I had no interest in directing, no interest in really the film business aspect other than hopefully getting one of my stories sold. And I literally had written Just to Serve as my seventh screenplay. And I hadn't gotten anything sold and whatever, and I had the opportunity, I did some development on it and got some good coverage on it, and I had the opportunity to work work with the, the, the film school at uh, Arizona State University. So I was able to make a professional film using a professional crew and professional actors, but I was also able to get um, students to intern and, and, and um, give up their time and labor and a whole bit to make the, the, the project more financially manageable. 
so they, they gave me they, you know they gave me access to a camera they gave me access to sets they gave me access to the, the student labor and, and and some of the professors came in as liaisons and it was a summer project for the kids and it was my directorial debut so they probably doubled my money in terms of the money I put into it in terms of the, the um, production value of the film the directing came along because once I realized I was doing this project and I, I had the script and, and I was able to at least fund it initially um, as, as a writer, then, I, then I'm saying, well, why would I hire a director? I know the story better than anyone. I can control the cost and I'm not going to be fighting with somebody I'm paying. <laughs> you know right. So, so um, I, took, I took that time to say, okay, uh, it's about the relationship, being definitive in terms of what you want to, the story you want to tell. And having written it and lived so close to it and, and knowing what the strength of my story was, I felt that there was a good thing to direct. And now I'm kind of hooked on it and I see that, that people like the way that I directed the film and like the set that I ran and, and being able to, to go from the first pen stroke of the script to the, uh, the DCP, the, the, uh, the hard drive that goes into the, the cinemas. To be able to go from A to Z all the way like that to see the entire process makes me, you know, pretty confident about doing it again. Well, you have it produced. Now, i got to ask you, you know, you said you've written seven screenplays. And, and you know, I've, I've written, I've optioned a screenplay years ago. But uh, my first screenplay, I would never look at. Do you remember your first screenplay? And do you ever look oh, yeah. back at it and go, what the hell is this? Oh, no, definitely. I would say my first few are like that because... It's, in, it's like this in all art, and artists, are, you know, even musicians are like this. You put your first thing together, whether it be your first album, your first movie, your first screenplay, you want every good joke to be in there, every positive, everything that makes you look great in it, and you will sacrifice story or, you know, um, you know uh, you, you'll sacrifice a lot of stuff just to get your points out so you look like a great guy or a great person or talented or funny or whatever. Um, and then you realize that you can make art and, and have those qualities come out in the context of making great art. So that's what I did, you know, the last couple that I've made and the last, you know, bit of work that I've done in my late 30s and early 40s, I definitely can see the growth. And, um, you know, now that I've, that I've able, been able to write something and shoot it, it really has taken the intimidation factor away from, from, from my writing. I think my writing is going to go a whole lot smoother because I'll literally be able to see it as I write it. Now, what made you stick with it writing? You said you wrote seven screenplays and, you know, and, and you know, screenplay, screenwriting is a laborious project and as mm -hmm. you, as you get into it and as you know what you're doing, you know, in the beginning, you know, you, you sit there, you start writing and you get like 10 pages in, you go, I got to change this. And a lot of people go back and then as you get older, you go, okay, this is why we have drafts. But what made you keep with it? I mean, were, were you getting these scripts to certain people? Were you getting pitches? I mean, I scripts read and and um, critiqued but also it's, it comes goes back to what we first talked about is about the finishing it's like why what, you know do I want to, to say that I spent 20 years of my life or, or you know like literally 20 years of my life doing something and just said the hell with it no and it, and for me it was it was a nice it was a nice hobby, a nice diversion, you know, a, a, a nice way to put research and, and things. And I like I like the idea of telling stories, and I like movies and, 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 and the whole bit. So I kept going. I stuck with it because I really wanted to do it, and I knew that I could do it. And the more that I learned, the, 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 um, the, the less intimidating it became. And then I watched films and think that I could do that. And a lot of people say that. But, and a lot of people say they want to make films, but I actually made one. And I put one out, and I got distribution, and it's on demand right now, and, and all that. So 
that that in and of itself is an accomplishment, and, and there's, a, there's a very good chance I'm gonna make another one because the people I'm working with want me to make another one. So that that makes me feel good that it's not me trying to twist people's arms to let Marvin tell another story, but they want to say, okay, what's Marvin's next story, and, and how are we gonna have help you tell it? Now, do you think because of your popularity in the rap field and having a big hit that that of course because you were uh, that secured secured you with good uh, a good agency but do you think that it hindered you at all because people were like wait a second how's this guy writing a screenplay when he wrote bust the move do you think that ever happened it hindered you or did it help you well you know as a screenwriter anybody anybody writes a stack of screenplays and they, and they want to make the first one the hardest or the first one to make is the hardest one so I didn't take it as a personal, you know, I would probably get stuff read because I, you know, was young and seen it made bust a move, but getting something, not even option, but getting something made is, was as daunting for me as it was for anybody. I mean, you could be a no name and you write a, you know, a script that somebody will read, but getting that somebody to put money up to make it is a totally different story. And I knew that I knew, I knew the lay of the lands, but I just, I just felt that I, I could write and I could get better at it. Now, how, what was the process that you got this Made, you sold this script. How did it happen? Did you meet with people? Did oh, they no. like it? I didn't sell the script. I, I came out of my pocket and I shot okay. the movie. And then I got distribution. So the movie's never really been sold. I picked up a distributor, so I'm still, three-day weekend is still the, the main producer on it. So I went from, from A to Z. Like, I wrote the script, tried to sell the script, wasn't getting good offers on selling the script, had an opportunity to make the movie, made the movie, went out, got distribution, and I'm sitting here as the main producer, writer, director, you know, uh, supporting actor in, in a film that I have the, the majority of the interest in. Now, where did the story come from? watching a whole lot of movies but I but there's a little bit more to that when I was in up in the air Jason Reitman uh, held a screening here in, in Phoenix and I live in Scottsdale Arizona so I went to that screening and at that screening I met <clears throat> the reps that handle all of the movie companies so they asked if I'd want to come and see some early screenings of films and I said sure that was in 2011 or so to some 2012 I've watched between Two and three hundred movies with critics, with advanced audiences, seen reactions and the like. So going home and writing a screenplay with that kind of background and 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 knowing what people react to in the audiences has really helped me create you know create something good. So one of my previous screenplays was called Princess. I sent it out for coverage, and the coverage came back saying there wasn't enough tension. So I had this thing in the back of my mind, like what? can I create, what kind of story can I create that has that ultimate tension? And that's what I did. The, the, basically, you have a plaintiff and a, 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 a person who's lost a loved one, and the person who was, the other person that was convicted, uh, or the other person that was charged, rather, with killing the loved one, was sent to trial and found not guilty because of technicalities. So... Your, your, your plaintiff is feeling like they've been cheated by the system and they, they feel like they've lost a loved one and, and have also lost the, the opportunity of justice. And all of a sudden, the plaintiff is kidnapped, the defendant is kidnapped, they're thrown into a room and they're forced to, to uh, conduct the trial again. And that's, that's basically the, the story behind the, 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 you know, the crux of the story behind, behind Justice Served. So you, you write it, and then you produce yourself. Now, what's your feeling the first day you step behind that camera and you're, you say, action? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Was it a little bit oh, yeah, of no, both? I got it wrong the first time. I got it, I got it wrong the first time. 
I said action before we did speed and all that other stuff. So I got it wrong the first time, but that was the last time I got it wrong. So, so, so once I got through that, and it was good. I got through it the first day, got through, shot the local actors, and then Lance Henriksen came on came on the second day. And I'm shooting the biggest actor that I, you know, the biggest actor in my film. I'm shooting the majority of his scenes in the first few days of me ever being behind a camera. But the confidence that I had after completing his work, because he does some amazing work in my film, and the confidence that I had really, really um, lent itself to the rest of the production. Even the professionals that worked on the set said they saw me grow as a director while I was, you know, while, while the time went on during shooting. And then going through the whole process of, you know, getting the post done totally right, spending the money, taking the time, getting the distribution, you know, not taking cheap offers, not taking, you know, no for an answer or, or you know, not, not, uh, not compromising, you know, just trying to make the best of my vision. That, all that stuff has given me a lot of confidence in terms of not only completing this project, but going forward and doing other things as well. Now, you wrote a part for yourself. How did you come up with the name Troy Bannister? And then did you write the um, part for yourself originally, or did you just end up doing it? No, no, no. I wrote it for myself originally because I didn't think I'd get any famous people to be in a movie. So I said, okay, if, if I'm working with just unknown actors and mine is the most known face, then I better give myself enough of a role that you see me enough that there's a face you know or someone you know or the you know there'll be interest in that because sometimes people don't want to look at films with faces they don't know. Then I got Lance. Then I got Gail. Then I got Lachlan. Then I got you know Denise Denise Lawton, and then Chase Coleman has a has a, a you know a, a good TV presence and a good fan base. So all of a sudden I get this amazing cast. And they're doing great work, and I'm still there as Troy. So when I get on the phone and I'm talking with Lance, Lance says he's going to do the movie. He's like, okay, well, we got to get a really good cast for the rest of this film. Who's playing Troy? I'm like, uh, I am, sir. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm known as a musician, but he's looking to get some of the best actors to come in to do the rest of the roles because he sees how, you know, how strong the parts are. So to get, you know, to be able to do that and, 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 and put on all those hats and have it turn out successfully and um, you know, I've gotten some good reviews on it from some people. It, it, it's really, it really makes me feel good in terms of all the hard work I put in to get to that point. Now, for your, do you already have your next project in mind? And then, how will you will you go about it the same way? Or now, because you have a finished product that you can show people, can you push that at a studio? Um. Well, it's interesting. The the, econ the economics. I'm <laughs> gonna put this. Um, the, the, the economist in me is, is, is kind of looming there saying there's something, there's, there's several projects that I want to write, but I want to see what's going to work best in the business infrastructure I have. So if I want to work with the same, um, di distributor, what, you know, what's in their wheelhouse, what would work best with them? If I'm going to work with, with, uh, the just local actors out here, what would be the best story to tell that we could shoot out here? If I'm able to get more of a budget and I can go to LA and I can get some good actors and, and have more of an infrastructure to support that, what, what would the story be, you know, be best for that? So I'm trying to get a, a you know, that kind of lay of the land before I dive into one project. And it's part of me thinking I want to start two or three. And then once I know what, what, what the best thing would be for me to shoot next, just finish that one and then shoot the thing that would be best, you know, best for me uh, next. Because, you know, the art, the art is great, but the art is really short-lived in terms of writing it and shooting it. The shooting it, you know, is a month tops. 
on an independent film, and then after that, you're just thrust into the business of it. Now, when you sit there and cast, I think it would be an advantage. I mean, there's got to be some people that are huge Young MC fans that would just want to work with you, that bust the move made a difference, and they love that song. I mean, is there has anyone ever come up to you like an actor and said, hey, man, I really love that song, and now because you direct, you can probably sit there and go, I really love your work. I got a project I'm working on. Not really. I mean, they knew. Uh, like, I went to a, a, a um, red carpet of another local, you know, another independent film that was done locally here in, in Arizona. And when I told they, the people knew who I was, uh, when they found out who I was, you know, we're talking about the music, and I said, "Yeah, I just did my first feature film." And then all the actors are like, "You're doing a film now?" Well, you know, get in touch with me because I could use the work. Blah blah blah. So it wasn't even a question of, "Oh, I really want to work with Young MC," but I don't know if you know, but 95% of SAG actors are unemployed in any given moment. Oh, yeah, I know. Believe me, I've had I have a lot of character actors on my show, and they said, you know, how the industry has really changed. It was because a lot of movie stars come to TV. So now it used to be where the guys who would star on TV series, now they're the guest star. And then so all of a sudden the people who were the guest stars are now the day player. And it's just it's it's a, it's a very hard right now for, for an actor to make a living just because the way things have changed in the roles. not easy it, it really isn't so I I, um, I have a soft spot for that and I, and I saw what was happening with, with some of my actors and the stories they would tell in terms of financial hardships and some of these there's some people that you know their face and they're having trouble you know they, they'll have trouble making ends meet or you know have to get rid of their cable or something like that because because money's so tight because the roles don't come so knowing that I you know I I I'm grateful for my music career, but also keep that in, in, in really good perspective that um, I can get better cast than I thought I could. Because I know with Justice Served, I got a much better cast than I thought I you know, would be able to when I first finished the film. So if the goal is to get some known faces, you'd be surprised. If the script is good and people like it, you, you can get some known faces and, and, and put them in your film. And uh, that's the, that's the, the kind of balance that you got to walk is, is to be able to make a good story that you can tell economically and then, you know, hopefully get some faces that people know as well. Right. Now, I want to go back to uh, your, your early rapping days. Um, yeah, sure. You won a Grammy. Now, now, what is that like? And, 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 and what is it like? I mean, you're in L.A., you're, you're popular. How does the... Do you and you said you didn't do drink or do drugs, but did you get? Did you meet a lot of people? Did you did you have situations oh, yeah, where you no, never I, thought? No, it, was, it was great. I mean, no, you're in LA and you're meeting amazing people. So you meet Bono and he knows who you are. You meet Axl Rose and he knows who you are. You meet Bruce Springsteen and he knows who you are. That you I mean that, that that that's amazing. I mean, there's there's no words there's, there's no words for that. So. Um, it, it, it was a great time, and the Grammy, you know, the Grammy was 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 something of a surprise. You know, you don't expect it, and also it was all, it was the first televised rap Grammy, and it was the second rap Grammy ever given away. So the fact that uh, it was establishing the genre is something I'm very proud of. And but it's something I like. I don't have it out on the shelf. I have it. I have it in in its original case in in uh, in a bag in the closet <laughs> because I don't want to look at it all the time because I don't want to sit there and think that the high, high point of my life was in my 20s, early 20s. Having said that now with the movie and, and the things that I'm doing with film, it makes me put my music career in a lot, in a lot um, more healthy perspective, I think. And I can really see how 
you know, how diversified I've been able to, to become and also be successful at it. So um, it, it, it was an interesting time then, but I, I definitely have a different life outlook now. Well, look, and back then, as you know, when, when after you your first uh, album, and I still call them albums, um, were you... How did you follow it up? It's like you're probably doing the same now with your movie. Like you got that first one, and you had such a huge success in the first album. Were you were you worried how the second one would come out, or did you did you change your musical style? I mean, I mean I, I, if anything, I was probably overconfident in terms of how the second one came out because they're all crapshoots. So you put your best work into it, and then you hope that it gets the response that, that you're looking for. Problem is is that if I make my first album at 20, then it's in essence you had you know, 17 to 20 years to make that first album. If the second album is made at 22, then you have, <laughs> you have two years to make that second album. So that's part of it. And, and you have the expectations of the success you had on your first album, even though people know you're coming this time. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that lend themselves to the sophomore slump. Now you're doing your producing music. Now are you going out on the road back then? Was there was there a big? Oh yeah, no, no. I toured. I I, I toured with Dick. I had, I did have uh, several cavities filled. I had a rash that broke out of my body from wearing sweaty clothes doing radio after shows. I, I it was ridiculous. I was I was touring like I haven't toured. I I hadn't toured that much till this last year with the I Love the Nineties tour. So that it was it was a lot. And and just coming out of college and and. Um, you know, getting on a road, getting on a tour bus, it was a lot. It definitely was a lot. It must just be such a great feeling when you hit that song out that people just go crazy. I mean, what, what is that feeling? I mean, I'm sure you still get, and you probably now, because, you know, you've matured, you probably get that same feeling now when you know you nailed a set as a director. You, went, you sit everything and you go cut and you know it's printed. But was it like as, as being young, just having, was it was it a feeling of just, Amazing, because people just knew the song and they were probably singing the lyrics, and and that must have all this, that must sort of get crazy sometimes. Man, it, it, it felt great. I mean, the irony of it is, is that I felt that I've made better music since, and and what I realized is that I shouldn't try and micromanage and and, and nitpick every little aspect of, of Bust the Move to try and see what it was that people liked. It came along at a good time. It was a lot of people's first girlfriend when it came to rap music. And a lot of times, you know, regardless of, of whatever flaws your first girlfriend may have, she's still your first girlfriend. And there's nobody that'll live up to it. So that's how I had to look at it in terms of me feeling that I've grown as an artist and been able to make better music as an artist, but everybody loves me, you know, knows me for Bust and Move. And, but that's a good thing. You know what I mean? So that's something it takes a while to come to grips with. Now, as a movie lover, which you are, and you've seen a lot more, you must... um love the fact that, you know, you go through your IMDb, your songs have been used in so many oh, yeah. TV shows and movies. Is there anything you would, any shows you have turned down or is there any shows that you really wanted to get on and you couldn't? Well, the thing is, is that a lot of times I don't make the deals. The deals are made by, you know, the publishers and the, and the, um, you know, the other companies or whatever. And I find out about them. And I'm like, oh, I got them in this. And it's, you know, and that's a good thing. Having said that, they're taking a ride with me. So if they put the movie, if they put the song in something stupid or they put the song in something that's going to make me look bad, it's going to make them look bad, it costs them money too. So it's, it's ironic that um, it's kind of gone the way it's gone. And luckily, the record never got to a place where people got sick of it. So I'm, I find myself getting more licenses and, and the record having a longer tail than typically because it, it never really was burnt out on radio, um, on video, or in, or in sales. It, you know, it was never really, people never really were beat over the head of, with it. And it was so unique to people at the time that, that it really, uh, 
it, it really benefited me um, in terms of having a record with, with, a, with a long lifespan. Now, you mentioned the 90s tour. How did that come about, and, and what made you decide to go back out on the road? Because you seem to be, you know, very happy with the writing and the directing. Did you miss the performing, the live performing, or what made you jump onto that oh, tour? No, I, I mean, every year I would do 20, 25 shows. I've done as many as 30 shows in a year, you know, maybe a little, you know, a little more when, but, but basically around the 25 to 30 range. Last year I did 110 shows and there were three other acts on the tour that did more shows than me. So it was just that the people that love the music in the 90s are now coming to that age where they're spending money. And to get on this lineup with Tone Low, Coolio, Call Me Bad, All For One, Salt and Pepper, Vanilla Ice, you know, some have Rob Bass, um, Kid and Play, you know, CNC Music Factory, Snap. I mean, just, there's so much going on. Any one of the lineups that I'm in, it's like hit after hit after hit. I come out and do my set, and I usually either open or go close to opening, and I'm proud to do it. You know, most people are like, oh, I want to close, I want to go later, I want to this, I want to that. I mean, as long as the crowd knows that I'm going first and they can in on time, then, then I'm good. You know what I mean? And I knock it out. But um, I had always been performing, but this is this is just something extraordinary over the last, like, two years. Now, have, did you hang out with a lot of those acts back in the day? Like, did they, did, like, how was it, like, with the, you know, like, comics hang out with comics? And, you know, you know, like, when Sunset Strip was big with the heavy metal guys, they all hung out. Did Were you hanging out with the guys back in the day? Were you friends with some of them? And, and I mean, me, me and Tone are close. I mean, obviously, being with the label, I've known Coolio for years. Um... A lot of it, you know, Salt and Pepper I've known, Vanilla Ice I knew, you know, for years, but some of the people I meet for the first time, like, uh, all for one, I did not know those guys, and they're, they're some of my best friends now, they're great guys, so, um, it, it's, it's just a good thing, and, and the thing is, is that we're very sober and very aware of where we are, you know, and what this opportunity is. That's really what it is, it's like, it's not typical for someone with a record that's, you know, with as many years as mileage as mine to have as many shows as I'm having. We're going to Australia, we're going to the UK, we're go, you know, doing over a dozen dates in Canada. I mean, th there's a lot going on with that tour that usually does not happen for someone in my position. Now, do, do you get tired? Because it's a lot of traveling. You have to sit there sometimes and go, oh my God, because we're not young anymore. We're not kids. You know, when you're, when you're 22, 23, 24, you can stay up all night. Now it's like, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night at like four in the morning and I'm like, oh God. You know, it's like, how 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 is your body holding up with it? I mean, the thing is, is, is I, you know, they make fun of me because I don't stay out. So I'll open the show. Some Sometimes I'm done off stage by like 7.30, 7.45. I'm there sweaty. I want to go back to the room, take a shower, get something to eat, watch the game, and then go to sleep. And if I have a 6, 6 a.m. flight, just be ready for that to go to the next city or go to the next thing so that's what I'm doing is I'm making sure I'm preserving myself and preserving my throat so I don't burn my voice out and um, those are those are the things that I'm that, that I'm really uh, paying attention to it makes you tired but you make it good money you know it's, it's 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 good money and not everybody has the opportunity and not every artist even artists of my of my era have an opportunity like this so I'm not gonna say that oh, I'm too tired to keep going um, I'll go to you know till it doesn't make sense to go anymore now what is it like for you? Because I'm sure that people come to your show. There's generations. There's probably parents, then their kids, and then probably grand uh, grandkids. What's that like when you sit there and see how the music has touched so many generations? It's humbling, but 
know, and also, it, you know, me with the economist in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of, of the, the licensing opportunities and the fact that kids may not know it from when it was on the radio. Then it was on the radio before they were born, but they saw you, me, and Dupree, or they saw Glee, you know, or they saw The Blind Side. Or, or, you know, or whatever other licenses or, you know, TV shows or whatever, that all those things on the IMDb that you're talking about, those are the things that have opened it up to the new generations. Parents, parents will play the song for kids, you know, but, but a lot of the licenses, uh, at least up until a couple of years ago, that was the thing that the kids were getting into. Now we have old school rap or throwback rap as a standalone genre at radio. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. But I went to Indianapolis, there's two stations like that. I go to Sacramento, there's, there's a station or two like that. The Bay Area has multiple stations like that. I'm amazed, I'm amazed to go and, to go and hear that as a standalone genre at terrestrial radio. So seeing that, it really puts in perspective not only how much time has passed, but also the influence that the music had over so many people over such a long period of time. Now, You've been making music. You were in L.A. What made you leave L.A. and go to Flagstaff? I know and it's funny because there's well, lately... I'm, I'm in Scottsdale, by the way. Uh, Scottsdale, I'm sorry. But, I'm sorry. Um, I came here. I initially came here in a relationship. Relationship didn't work out, but I loved it here. Everything from my my CPA to my to, to medical care to my house. You know, I have a pool in the backyard. I can watch clouds move. I, you know, wake up in the morning and I don't feel like, you know, I'm already behind schedule like you can in L.A. You can make a bunch of money in L.A. You would know this. You make a bunch of money in L.A., 90% of the country you're rich, and there you're going month to month. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And, and I just got to the point where if I don't keep getting these big licenses and if I'm not able to get the shows and if money, you know, tightens up, like, hey, do I really want to try and compete with this, this, this cost of living when I don't have to? You know, L.A. is great when you first get in and you need to establish a name for yourself and, and, and put a basis together for your career. But at this point, I could be anywhere. So uh, coming out here was a, was a really smart thing for me business-wise, and I wouldn't have been able to make the movie in L.A. Right. I knew a lot more people, I mean, and I probably have access to more people that, that, that had um, you know, influence in movies in L.A., but being able to get a project off the ground, something extraordinary would have had to happen. You know, so me being able to do do it here has really helped. Well, it's funny because I know you know I just I just moved two weeks ago actually, but a lot of people I know have been moving out, and a lot of actors I know who are sitting there going, you know what? As soon as as soon as our kid graduates high school, we're out of here. Did did you feel? And I noticed this. Everyone I've talked to, and I'm actually starting to feel it. It, it, do you feel almost like a sigh of relief when you wake up now, or have you worked? You've lived out for what ten years? Yeah, I've been going for yeah, May's eleven years. Um. It's a little bit of a sigh of relief and more just happy that I made the decision because I was in a good place. I was making good money, but then I saw where it was going and I saw how quick it was going. And then you get in your car at 2.30 and then you're, you know, if you want to, you know, if you're in the valley and you got to go to Santa Monica, you're gone till 7 for your meeting. Right. Or you're gone till 8 or 9, you know what I mean? And it's like, that's going to be every day. There's so many people driving, you know, they're driving cars out there that, that aren't roadworthy and that kind of stuff. It's like all those things are just... You know, I, I, I have multiple friends that are in the entertainment business. One guy, really good friend of mine, PR guy that I work with, he went out to L.A., he was able to get on with a firm, then he stopped with the firm, he was able to get some good clients and start his own his own PR firm, had a kid, and he's like, there's no way I'm raising my kid here, and came back. And he's like, you know, and then now we're going to do some work, and he's got his connections, and he made some decent money, but he's like, I can't raise my kid out there and do the things that I, that I need to do being there. It's good that I went, and I, you know, went for four years. It's like, it's like it's the, uh, went to the University of Los Angeles or whatever, but 
I, I, or the University of Hollywood, rather, but, um, but, but he couldn't stay. And, I, and I, I told him before he went, I'm like, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And he basically said all the things that were, dragged, were, were pulling me out to L.A. were getting less and less important to me and were becoming worse and worse to the point where I said, I need to go back to Arizona. Now, through the years, you've, you've still have been creating new albums, new music. How has, your, how has your writing style changed? Has it matured as you have, or do you feel that when you write something, there's more meaning in it now because you have wisdom and you've been around? I mean, the, I think the only thing over the last three albums or so is that my writing is real. I'm, I'm frighteningly meticulous about my writing that every I dotted and T crossed and I really take the stage in the mind when I write. So I'm like, how, how will I get through this on stage? How will I communicate this to the audience? My second album, I was writing songs that I couldn't get through or at least couldn't get through the, on, on the level that I wanted to. 32 bar verses with no places to breathe and I mean just really tough stuff that it was great in the studio, but I'm not a guy that goes on stage with a hype man. So I'm thinking, okay, let me, let me consider the stage and let me make a track that'll be good for people to get into and let me make lyrics that'll be, that I can communicate the story well. And I've been doing that the last several albums and that's something that it, it's, a, it's a great thing when I'm done, but the process becomes a bit more painstaking because it's, it's a lot of work that I got to get into. Now, when you do these 90 shows, do you do new tunes? I mean, or, or, I mean absolutely. And so, absolutely. I do, I do new stuff and then I do bust a move and if I have time for an encore, I may do another older piece. But, um, but, but I start off definitely with newer material because that's what I'm more comfortable with. I don't, you know what I mean? I, 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 know, my rap, I know my rapping style, I know my producing style, and I like the fact that I can take a good song from, from my fourth or fifth album and a good song from my, my sixth album, and you know what I mean? I, I, can, I can take good songs like that that may not be brand new, but they're newer than what people know me for, and go out in, in front of a willing audience and, and uh, perform those and get good responses from them and then hit them with the one that they know. Now, do you switch it up on each show, or do you try to keep it pretty much the same? I pretty much keep it the same. I mean, it, it would be silly to try and, you know, for me, a bust and move always should go last or close to last. You know, so you build up build up a crescendo. They don't give us a lot of time on the 90 show. I have 15 to 20 minutes each show, so I want to make sure that, that I show that I put on a good performance, that they're getting a be the best effort out of me, and then, you know, get the song that they, they came to hear. Now, for your acting, now your, your first role was in The Player? Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah that that was. But I don't even know. I don't even know if I had dialogue in that movie. I may. I, I I'm not even sure if I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was good being on set. And Tim Robbins was a good guy, and I sat next to. Oh God, was it Patricia? No, it was Rosanna Arquette. I sat next to. Okay, and and, yeah. and you worked with Robert Altman. Yes. I mean, for, yes. for you, that must be amazing, especially now looking back at it that you're directing to have actually got a chance to work with a legend. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, like I said, it, 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 that, that was a scene with a ton of extras, so I didn't have a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with him, and he asked me to do something, and I did it, and it made the film, and I'm happy. So, so um, you know, I mean, uh, it's funny, because I, I, I relate back to um, not only meeting uh, Jason Reitman when I did Up in the Air, but I was uh, friends with Abel Ferrara, because I was a fan of King of New York uh, back in the day, and he was an interesting director, so just... I'm not the kind of person that, that really 
uh, fawns over many directors or, or their styles or anything like that. I mean, if I if I see something good, I you know I I, I definitely gravitate to it. But um, it was just interesting in terms of me being a director now, uh, the, the different personalities that I've met who've done that job, and 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 the kind of, the kind of people that 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 have, that have done that job. So it's, it's been an interesting transition. Now, how did the up in the air role come? And, and also, you're working with Reitman, whose father's a legend. I mean, how did yeah. that come up? And what is that like? Because you're working with a lineage. You're working with this lineage of a director. You know, it's like his father is amazing, and the young young ones great too. How did that role come up? honest and then he wrote me into the script and I had a talk with his wife and his wife say, was saying I was telling Jason not to get his hopes up because we, we didn't think you'd do it and I said well I heard it was you know good movie and I heard George Clooney's in it and I get to perform and and whatever and, and, and um, I, met, I met Clooney and we had mutual friends so that was a cool thing and we had a good you know a good discussion and, and I met a, a great guy by the name of Randall Poster who was a music supervisor on the film and all of a sudden you know Randall put a, a couple of my songs into other projects so I, it was a great deal for me all the way around and then from there I, I, I was able to meet some film executives and um, express my desire to write and and uh, and hopefully get a script, screenplay sold and then dealing with them and going out to LA and getting coverage and that kind of stuff all of that stuff has helped help me become a better storyteller um, from, 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 the, uh, from the screen side from the film side so it, it, it's very interesting how these things kind of fall into place it's like degrees of separation but it's definitely helped me out now when you're on the road with the 90s tour do you sit there and take time to write or to scream this, or are you to, all music I'm going to I haven't and I won't even lie about that I haven't because I've been looking for the opportunity to get distribution for my first film. I'm the kind of person where if the first thing isn't making money, I'm not going to work on the second thing. I'm going to see the first thing through. Once again, back to our finish motif. I have to see that it's done. I can't just say, okay, I made a movie and it's going to do whatever it's going to do, but let me work on another one. I, cause I, in, in my heart of hearts, i got to know that, that the thing that I do can be commercially viable. I'm not making movies just for fun. I'm not making it for, to be home movies for friends. I'm making it because I want to sell it, just like music. I love making music, but if I wasn't eating from it, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> so so it's, just that, it's just that straight up. Now, do you have any comedy in you, writing? A little bit, yeah. But the thing is, what I find is... Um, Without getting too technical about it, you can put comedy in other genres. You can put you you can put a joke into a horror film. You can put a joke into a thriller. But if you make a film that's all jokes, then a lot of times comedy is territorial. And unless you have like a Jim Carrey in your movie, you're not going to do well very well foreign. Unless you have like a bridesmaids on your hand or something like that, it's very difficult for the typical comedy to you know make money and make its money back that's what i've heard and seen and felt so i definitely have a wicked sense of humor but i try and uh, put it into other genres of film and then at some point i may make a comedy but that'll be when when i'm a lot more established i'll, I'll, I'll look at just doing a straight comedy what was it like directing yourself um it, it was it was a little difficult, but I, I you know would trust my first AD and the people I would put in the chair, and if they told me to look for something, then I would then then, then I would look for it. But um, I really worked hard on the screenplay and knowing the, the lines. 
So the, the scenes that I have with uh, Denise Lawton, where I'm the defendant, she's the plaintiff, we're kind of, you know, back and forth. It's like table tennis. We're, we're leading each other. So I made sure that I that I was pretty much verbatim from the script so that if she were able to, you know, were ever getting lost or, you know, losing a line or something like that, that literally she could see my... Um, the words that I was saying to her are words that she's literally seen verbatim. And I think that helped. We were able to get through a lot of pages and things like that. So the fact that I was able to get all of my dialogue in and it was very natural to me helped the process, but also helped the other actors too, I think. Well, now that you got this one under your belt, if you do a next one, are you going to act in it or are you just going to just take the director and your writing? I, like, yeah, I mean, I like acting in it, but not as much as I did in this one. Like, like I said, Troy was such a major role because I didn't think I'd get any famous people around me. So, you know, ideally, you, you, as a director, if you're going to act in it, you want to, you know, two, three-day shoot, something short, something that occurs a couple times. If you can do something, that, you know, have a character that affects the plot, great. But if not, you're just in it, and, you know, just to, just to exercise that muscle and, and keep your, you know, your SAG membership going and that kind of thing. But other than that, I, I would not want to, like, direct something that I started. Now, do you want to get, do you, do, are you up for doing other acting gigs? I mean, because I just, I mean, Hollywood is, I mean, it's changing. It, it, it's changed a little bit now, but it was like, I would go on readings and it would be like, you know, black guy with radio and they would, you know, they, they all the black characters would talk a certain way and, and, and it was just, I didn't get anything out of it. You know what I mean? So like me acting in somebody else's movie would almost be like me rapping somebody else's lyrics. Right. That's how I look at it. Okay. Like I do my best acting when I write the stuff that I act. Well, it's good, man. Well, you know, I'm glad we got to do this. You know, it's funny. I, we, we had been talking for a while, and I was recording only in L.A. Then about a year ago, the studio closed, so I could do it everywhere. And then now I live, moved back, and we got to. I'm glad we got you in here. Now, now, where can people find your movie? Okay, right now, the, the movie's called Justice Served, and it's on-demand, cable, and satellite. So whatever your cable system is, uh, you, you, you can find it in the on-demand section there. Your satellite, you know, uh, digital direct TV, it's there. Also, uh, let me see, iTunes, pay-per-view, Amazon on-demand, PlayStation, Xbox, Vudu, um, and, and other, like, on-demand pay-per-view outlets right now. So it's everywhere, man. It's kicking some ass. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we had a theatrical release here in Arizona for a week. And and that that did well out here, but also that helps your positioning with the on demand platform. So I'm learning a ton about the business too, and I once again, uh, uh, you know, satisfies the economist in me as I go forward with this. Now, what give the give the listeners your Twitter? Uh, my Twitter is official young MC. And we we gotta get you tweeting more because people want to hear from you. I know they do. It's it's just hard, man, because I'm not that kind of guy to be like, oh, I just cooked the cat, I just cooked the casserole. Look at it, or I just got off a plane in such and such a place. I know I need to, and I, and I probably will. I've been so just caught up with the film and the tour and everything like that that I just I didn't want to start and then not keep up with it. So I, I gotta I gotta get more on, and I think I, I think I will. Okay, great. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad we did this, man. This is great. Thanks, Steve. Hope this works out well for you, man. I hope I did a good job. Oh, it was great. So, you know, people follow him. Go watch his video. Go get the movie, man. Just go. It's probably like four or five bucks. You spend that on a latte. Screw the Starbucks. You sit there. You make a cup of coffee at home. You drink it. You watch the movie. Instead of going out for a beer, you buy a six-pack. You watch the movie. 
go, go, go get the movie. And if people follow me on Twitter, it's at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 600 episodes. You can email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. And don't forget my cookbook, StopTheSalt.com. You know, when I had the bad health problem a few years back, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. It's just healthy, low-salt, because salt causes blood pressure, good stuff. You can get it at Amazon. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So that's what you got to do, people. So keep following me. Please check out the movie. Check check Marvin Young out on IMDb. Check out his past projects. Go watch him up in the air again. Do what you got to do. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.